just working through the yips. <laughs> I don't think you have the yips. You don't know anything about me. Mm. <laughs> so a couple things are happening. Yeah. One, it, it's getting warmer out. Yeah. It's getting nice I out. I can see your knees right now. Wow. I am contacting HR. I am <laughs> <laughs> filing a complaint. Um, but yes, apart from that, um, it's getting warmer. It's getting nicer. Um, I th- know that when I walked in today, you and I were both in particularly good moods, mm-hmm. um, which was rare and interesting. <laughs> um, I'll say that, um, which was good. But also apart from that, what, you've gotten one of the shots? I've, yes, I I've got my first of, Pfizer shot. I've gotten one of the shots. Which was also a Pfizer. Yes. And so, like, there's <laughs> – I feel like more and more lately you and I have sort of hit this point where we're, like, looking toward life in the aftertimes. <laughs> yes. A little more, right? And it got us thinking – you know, the first thing we started doing was talking about book club, right? Because that's, like – what people like us think about when we think about getting together with people, um, what we think about, like, I don't know, gathering again with others someday, maybe, like, all that kind of stuff. And so the prompt that we came up with is, describe to me your dream book club. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. So. And and more crucially, am I invited? So it depends because I'm going to I'm going to describe to you, I think, the aesthetic that I am the most uh, like nostalgic for or perhaps like yearning for and whether or not you want to be a part of that aesthetic is up Mm -hmm. to you. Mm -hmm. Everyone is welcome. Um, But so I am specifically imagining a type of book club where like ideally it's mostly readers, not like publishing people, right? Like I don't ever, I don't want to like be in a book club where I'm the expert, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Or like we have to read books that I sold or something. Like yeah. I don't, that's right. not interesting to me. Like right. what's interesting to me is like the idea of like a Saturday morning at an independent bookstore where we like sit in chairs around in a circle. <laughs> like I'm envisioning specifically subtext books yeah. in St. Paul because yeah, yeah. it's got these, these beautiful lights and it's in this historic building and it it's Whatever. a wonderful place to sit in a circle. It's beautiful. No it's question. got it's got some very yes. comfortable chairs yes. that you like sink into and will never come out of. Um, and I'm picturing like somebody bringing one of those cardboard boxes of like Dunn Brothers coffee mm-hmm. um, or like caribou coffee, whatever you know, one of those carafes. And then we drink them out of little mugs. And someone may or may not have brought treats, perhaps donut holes. Mm. Perhaps something mm-hmm. like that. And it I like has... that we have not even approached the idea of what you're actually reading. <laughs> Most it sounds like you just want a snack. Eric, I haven't seen people in a year and a half. Like okay. let me fantasize yeah. about like yes, the, yes, yes. the snack situation. Please, yeah. Yeah. Um and so we all sit in a circle and it's like ideally like a good mix of like retired like people and mm-hmm. some young like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm picturing like a few parents who like mm-hmm. finally got out of the house on a Saturday right. morning, and yeah. they're like, "This is this is Daddy's time." You right. know what I mean? And like a couple of whatever, and we read like something that I'm not an expert in. So like I don't know if this. I don't think it should be like um like a like a crimey sort of book club, but I'm thinking something like. Not like the Oprah level famous books, but I'm thinking kind of like second tier, yeah. like somebody recommended this book to me and I read it and it's like kind of always a little bit different. It's like maybe not even that good of a book, but it's like fun to talk about. And you just like sit there and everybody's like holding the copy of their book in their hand and they like never crack it open during the actual discussion. Mm-hmm. And it's just like very like kind of surface tier conversations with every once in a while like a hint of like greatness of like oh this is actual like literary criticism wonderful so like the key part that i heard there was that no one opens the book during book club because the thing that has been my experience historically in any book club i've been a part of i mean this is partially why i am not in any book clubs all of a sudden um is that i don't really tend to read the book 
very well um, at book club. I'm just sort of so. What does that mean? <clears throat> well, let me introduce to you this concept. All right, in the so I think I think it was Bill Simmons or someone years ago made this analogy for the guy who's like the last guy who made the NBA team, but so he doesn't really play. He doesn't really get in the game, but he gets a paycheck. Well, he gets a paycheck, but during the warm-ups and like when everybody's getting introduced, his job is just to like give out high fives. Uh. You know, he's just like the hype guy. Yeah, the chemistry guy was yeah. the term. Like that's kind of me in book club. <laughs> like I don't really read. I don't really bring much to the discussion. I don't really. I mostly just come and like drink a little and yep. make sure you're drinking a little. Okay. You know, like again, yeah. like. I'm keeping the stoke going. Yeah, it's like you're yeah. like you were my hype man. Like when I was getting ready for my wedding, right, like you right, were like right, in right. charge of the you were right. in charge of the music. Making you were in sure charge Christina of the food. was playing. Yeah, I yeah, and that's right. Exactly. That's Christina Aguilera. To those of you who don't know, <laughs> um. Um, but yeah, no, I mean it's. I don't know why I don't. I guess I've just I've always struggled in book clubs. Like I'm really? not very good at like. I don't know. I don't like to be honest. I don't really like reading things with others that much. See, I don't because, either. That's yeah. the thing. It's yeah. like the reason that I want like a kind of surface thing is because the books that like really truly matter to me and that I really love. I I feel the only image that comes to mind is, and these are the books that I do outside of work because the ones I do in work I have to like share with everybody and mm-hmm. it's like right. very stressful and whatever. Um, but the ones that I will read on my own I like don't tell anybody about and I hoard them like a dragon so Mm. when somebody is like what have you been reading lately I just lie because like I don't want anybody to know right um because it's like they'll perceive me finally as (laughs) as like the person that I really truly am this is a very anti being perceived podcast (laughs) we're generally against it we're generally against perception of any kind yeah. Um, but yeah. like what I'm but what I'm interested in <laughs> yeah. is I think the idea of like bringing or like introducing like being social into reading for fun again on a very mm-hmm. like low key mm-hmm. level. Like maybe it doesn't even meet every month. Maybe it meets yeah. every like six weeks yeah. or something, you know, and it's like pretty chill. The books aren't going to like rip your heart out and stomp on them. Mm hmm. And, yeah, if anybody has a book club in the um, Twin Cities area that would like a new member when everybody is vaccinated, please let us know. Um, but, yeah, we're most I'm mostly thinking about, like, book and, like, social talking about book as vibe rather mm-hmm. than, like, sitting yeah. like I'm in my English seminar right. in college. Right. That's but the vibe. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so... All that said, we do have we do have some meat and potatoes to get into today. So I should say welcome to this episode of Print Run. Uh, finally, my name is Eric Kane. With me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. We're talking about a term near and dear to our hearts, a term near and dear to everyone else's hearts. I think it's a very popular. Well, I guess I was I was going to say type of. I mean, I. The, the stumbling block is the point of the discussion here. <laughs> We're going to be talking about speculative fiction today. Specifically um, with literary fiction. Like what it means, what it is, how it functions, what people say when they say it. If you remember our episode, um, I guess it's, wow, it has been years, I think, since we did this. Time doesn't um, exist. I, it's fine. <laughs> um, we had an episode a long while back about like defining what literary means. Yeah. Um, and this is going to be in a similar vein of trying to like say when someone in the book industry and when someone not within the book industry says the word speculative, what is actually being said and what is actually being asked for. Um, so before we get to any of that, how about the basic rundown? Yes. Um, so mostly the biggest announcement is that we are going to be uploading our query show and our first pages show in the next few days. So if you're listening to this, um, on April 6th or a few days later, uh, definitely check in. Um, we will be critiquing first pages and queries on air for, anonymously. These queries and first pages are sent to us by real writers, mm-hmm. real listeners of the podcast. Mm-hmm. They're real queries. We're going to go through them. Hopefully, we'll all learn something from it. Um, and if you want us to critique your anything quite honestly like if you are like but what about a synopsis i want a synopsis critiqued like send that to us we'll do a synopsis episode send it in yeah the point of the patreon is to help you guys so 
Tell yeah. us what you need. Yeah. And we are also going to be starting our little like mini Patreon topics. So yeah. we're going to do one on new adults that we've already planned. We're going to do some on like various little query stumbling blocks. It'll be lots of fun. So we're going to be rolling those out um, starting next week. Over the next so, few weeks. Yeah. 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 So we've, we've got a big long list from people sending them to us, but we can add more. So mm-hmm. email us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. So, Laura. Yes. It's time to talk about the term on everybody's lips, um, on your lips, on my lips, on the whole industry's lips at all times. If you are someone who pitches fiction, which, of course, you are, which to a slightly lesser extent I am, um, and that is the term speculative. Yeah. Um, And now, so we should back up a second. The reason we wanted to do this episode today Mm -hmm. actually had less to do with... Um, like informing any of our listeners and more to do with like figuring our own life out. We've had this conversation for months. (laughs) Yeah, because there's been a genuine source, I think, of at least as it scans for me about of confusion, of frustration, of just like trying to figure out. So like you and I have calls and conversations with not only writers and other agents, but with editors all the time, right? Like our job is to hear from editors they tell us, oh, I'm looking for X, Y, and Z, and then we theoretically go find it and bring it to their door, right? Mm-hmm. And the word that keeps coming up, the word that every editor wants, every fiction writer or every fiction editor wants is, oh, I love speculative fiction, or I love <laughs> books with speculative elements. I love... The speculative elements so, is is the is the phrasing that we hear a lot. what ends up happening, always, you know it and I know it, is that you send them the piece of speculative fiction, right? That they love. That they <laughs> That is the <laughs> that is the point of frustration, isn't it? Cuz they always do love it. But then it's always either oh it's it was too speculative or it was not speculative enough, speculative enough or it was speculative in the wrong ways, right? Like maybe it's something that tipped too far into genre, right? And like it just it's gotten to the point where, like the word literary, speculative has become a term that, depending on the context in which it's used or the comps you're referring to or whatever it is, it can sort of mean all sorts of different stuff. Mm -hmm. And I want us today to sort of dig into maybe the root of those differences, like why maybe it's such a confusing, slippery term right now. And, And also, like, I mean, I think it should be said, like, why everyone's talking about it because the real answer is that we we all really genuinely do love speculative fiction right like i mean this is i mean i feel like you and i could rattle off all sorts of projects in you know books that we've wrapped or books that we read that would be called speculative fiction in one way or another that we love right like i mean i feel like anyone listening to this probably has an example of a piece that they think of as speculative fiction that really gets them going you know and like so it's a conversation like many conversations on the show, born out of frustration and love. (laughs) And so I want to start, Laura, with what you and I were kind of trying to drill into what the key sticking point is. Yeah. And we sort of came to the the basic idea, or you did very astutely, that speculative, the the main source of confusion comes from two different usages, right? There's speculative as genre category. Yep. Or I guess that's redundant. Speculative as like a category of book, and speculative as an aesthetic quality. Correct. And so, do you think you could, we could start by you just talking about the difference between those two things and like how you kind of see that split? Yeah. So I think the first thing to point out is speculative in terms of a qualitative element, but then also as a categorizational element for like selling books. It's kind of like the all dinosaurs are reptiles, but not all reptiles are dinosaurs kind of mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those of you who aren't super familiar, speculative fiction as a term in publishing, like when we're talking about sales, speculative fiction um, is an umbrella term that encompasses things like science fiction and fantasy and alternative history and science fantasy and kind of all of the little... Sometimes people throw a horror in there. It's like all mm-hmm. the little genres and subgenres of things that are 
like genres that are born out of speculation, right? So science fiction is a lot of the time like technology and space and things that are focused on advances in science and advances in technology. Imagining something in the world that is slightly beyond what we actually have. Right. Fantasy or sometimes very beyond what we already have. Fantasy um, is where we get the magic and the magical creatures and all that and like myths and all of that fun stuff. Um, there are places where a lot of these things allied. Um, and so we use speculative fiction to talk about kind of all of them in general. You'll hear me talk about like specfic. Um, another thing, which is not technically meaning speculative fiction, but it kind of is a, a blanket category also is SFF, which is like science fiction fantasy, mm-hmm. which basically is like a, another broad term like speculative fiction. Um, then you have people who use speculative fiction as saying, like, this book is, like, science fiction, but, like, not that much science fiction. So, nah. like, a really good example. <laughs> this is where I start to get mad in my own work life. Yeah. yeah. So a really famous example that we t- we've talked about on this podcast before is Emily St. John Mendel's Station Eleven, which in the hardcover edition, on the back of it, it said science fiction. And um, very famously, at least to us, the author pushed back on that and said, no, 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 it's speculative fiction. And um, all of that point is kind of moot now because in the paperback version, it's now listed as simply fiction. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But like, I think the point of, and where we're going to be heading with this conversation is, is that a lot of the time speculative fiction is used as kind of a, a term that embraces elements of the speculative within works while also like reject rejecting the genres of science fiction, fantasy, et cetera. And mm-hmm. it kind of like can pull you from something like science fiction, which is really tropey and kind of has its own fandom and it can kind of maybe be a little bit more respectable. So a lot to unpack yes. in that last sentence. <laughs> and the first, and so the first bit, which I think ties into the quote-unquote respectable part, does have to do with, um, like, perceived genre prestige, Mm -hmm. right? And, like, when you say that speculative fiction has the ability in the market or in the mind's eye of any editor or any book person to reject or to pull away from a category, like, like a book with science that's sort of feel science fiction-y, but not quite, so we're calling it speculative. Yeah. Like, when you say, and we're doing that because maybe we feel, like, instinctively or in a knee-jerk way that that book is elevated or something yeah. like that. Like, let's let's sit there for a second, because it does, and it does start to, I think, kind of intersect with the idea of, like, what is quote-unquote literary and what isn't, you know? Yeah, and... You know, and I will say that it's something that I think that as readers, we internalize kind of in both directions. Yeah. So we were just griping a little bit that editors will say, like, I really love speculative fiction. And then we give them a piece, but it's like too speculative. And then they turn it down. I actually had a moment the other long story, but like I accidentally erased the TBR pile in my my (laughs) library app and it's been a nightmare. But I was going through um, the fantasy section of of my library's audiobooks and on like page one with you know the big names Mm -hmm. guess what shows up lincoln and the bardo oh interesting and i like had like a visceral reaction to that where i was like Mm -hmm. this is not what i am looking for library like get your shit together right um, right lincoln and the bardo for those who don't know is a is a george saunders novel it won um, did it win the NBA? It won, yeah, it won the... Uh, or the, it won the Booker. The Booker. It won the Booker, yeah. yeah. it won the Booker. It was a big deal. It's 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 got a ghost in it. And importantly, it is widely considered a literary novel, yes. right? Like, this is something that is considered... You know, it's George Saunders, right? Like, yeah. Saunders is sort this of... Is a this is a poet. Yeah, yeah. right. Um. Yeah, so it, it's kind of, like, one of those lines that, like, it's really interesting. I'm constantly trying to cross the line as an agent, right? I'm constantly trying, and I really love working in the books that sit kind of comfortably between literary fiction, literary in terms of like where it would be shelved, but also is very literary in quality, and 
some sort of speculative fiction. Um, it's always like I like it when it has a speculative element. Yeah. And yet, even though I work and live in those that like in between space, mm -hmm. I got mad at like eleven thirty at night when I was having my freak out <laughs> that like that my library was offering me Lincoln and the Bardo when when I wanted like and Lecky. And like I think, so like not getting what you want feels like the defining theme of talking about and asking for speculative fiction yes. in the professional marketplace right now because. I don't know, like, I mean, I've had the same problem pitching, you know, what you would call, what I would certainly call speculative fiction in the genre, in the vein, at least in the I see it, like, in terms of, and this is where we get into, like, aesthetic qualities mm -hmm. um, of, like, something like Station Eleven, where it has, and this actually, I think, is a really key kind of delineation point, where um, I think speculative exists on the level of aesthetics, when the speculative element, the element that is imagined or surreal or whatever it is, it's not a plot driver or it's yeah. not a mechanical force in the book, but is rather just sort of a sheen <laughs> over everything. You're like, there's sort of there's sort of this idea of like a speculative gloss over everything, right? Yeah. Where it starts, like, and I don't know how else to put it than that. Maybe we can tease it out a little bit. But there are certain books right now that I think under any other circumstances, would be called literary novels. But they need to be positioned as slightly more fun and commercial than that. Yeah. Well, and so what we do is we <laughs> choose to highlight the bit about it that maybe is slightly more surreal or slightly more speculative about it and just say, oh, this is not, not only is this a well-written literary prestige piece, all these various different things that we could talk about, you know, it being language forward, it being, you know, character drama, whatever, but it's also got this, like, I really, I'm pausing because the word I really, like, the point is, like, it it is an aesthetic quality more so than it is anything mechanical about the story, right? There's just, like, a certain aura that the speculative literary novel has right now, you know? Yeah, I I think, and this is going to be like an imperfect sure. thesis, right? But I think the what you're talking about, that kind of speculative aesthetic, happens in place of robust world building. Yeah. So that's, Okay, so that's interesting. Same yeah. So I think, like, particularly in fantasy and science fiction, if you're reading the really tropey stuff, this, like, you know, one of the biggest praises is when a reader says, you know, this is a world I've never seen before, but I felt like I was in it. Like, you understand the mechanics of how it works. You understand how the people are part of the community and how the economics fits in and how the geographics fits in and how all of that works. There's and a lot what of the time politics spent on are. the page establishing that. Yeah. And, yep. and like, more importantly, like, everything that a character does is it becomes very clear that they are like making their decisions because of the information that they have of what it's like to live in the world that they're living in, right? And so um, if you take that and then compare it to Station Eleven again, and we're, and like Eric and I have made a point that we're only going to use like kind of slightly older, bigger examples for this episode because we don't because we want people to like know what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, so if you take Station Eleven, like this happens after like a post-plague event, right? Where most of the world is dead. Maybe don't read it right now. <laughs> is the point. Um, <laughs> but if you've not, if you've not read it, maybe wait. Um, but the thrust of the book, and it does take place in dual timelines, but the thrust of the book is that one of the main characters is part of a traveling theater troupe, mm -hmm. and so. A lot of it, you know, there is good info. It's not like she's bad at world building, right? Like there's good information about what the world is like. You feel like you understand it, but you're not immersed in it in the same way. It's like, very and, implied and in the background. Right. You only visit a few towns. They, the By virtue of these people being travelers, they don't really stay in the towns. They don't yeah. really like involve themselves in that. Yeah. And it becomes more of like this book theoretically could have no plague in it. And you could take the core Station Eleven story and set it in a in a completely real world. Yeah. To 
I mean, you I could. Get, you can make it historical. You could exactly. do There's a like, lot of things. The point is, like, the yeah. core mechanics of it is not actually that speculative, yeah. right? Like, it's just a, it's a character story. Yeah. I mean, it's a tight literary little novel, you know? And, and I, like, I think what makes the book very incredible, and to yeah. be clear, like, I am a fan of this yeah. book, yeah. what makes it incredible is the idea of taking, like, these people investing their lives in preservation of theater and culture in the midst of this like extinction level event almost Mm -hmm. and like that dichotomy is really interesting but that dichotomy is not the plot it's not driving the story yeah so like that particular like that is a very that's a slope right like that's not an on and off switch like there is there's matter of degrees to that and i feel like that's the kind of thing where when i'm talking to editors about something like i don't know i pitch books where a literary house will say, ah, you know, it's a little too speculative. And then you go yeah. to a you go to a more genre devoted house, and they say, mm, nope, you, this is really a little bit too literary, you know. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's 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 also a sliding scale in terms of, um, in terms of prestige yeah. from the author. Like yeah. if, oh like, yeah, let me put it this way: Marlon James was able to go, okay, after I won the Man Booker with a brief history of seven killings, I'm going to write an African Game of Thrones, right? And like, he could do that. Right, and, and not only could he do that, but he did it at a house that ostensibly publishes, you know, big literary event fiction, yep. right? Like, and they didn't bat an eye. I mean, it was this because it was Marlon James, it, and so in a way, like, there there does come a point where your profile as an author can start to kind of bend the conventions of a category too, right? I mean, like, you also can look at someone like you know Carmen Maria Machado, who writes. I mean, some mixture of, like, horror and gothic and, you know, some fantastic elements. But, like, I think first and foremost, you know, especially given, you know, she's published by Grey Wolf, all this kind of stuff. Like, you know, this is a literary writer. You know what I mean? She's, you know, from an MFA, all this kind of stuff. And, like, it's very – like, it's just a matter of positioning. And that's where I think it gets tricky where, you know, you and I have had a conversation before where, like, selling categories – are different than genres sometimes, right? You know what I mean? Like sometimes we're talking about how something gets positioned in a store or a market or a sales meeting, and sometimes we're talking about what's actually in the book. And I think like what's tricky, and this is actually, I wasn't planning to get into this kind of stuff in this conversation, but I'm there now, to be honest, which is that like I feel like a major point in frustration for a lot of readers right now who are careful readers who are always looking to publishers for the next thing, like, they don't see these lines quite as harshly yeah. or as, as vibrantly as we do in a way that I think really speaks to all of them. Like, they're perfect. Well, there's not a speculative fiction area of the bookstore. Exactly. There's exactly. fiction. Like, yeah. And maybe if, you know, maybe you'll get a science fiction fantasy section. Like, someone who likes this stuff as a reader is able to see that those degrees of differences and say, okay, this is something that is a little bit more on this end of the spectrum. This is something a little more on that. I, as a cohesive single human being, (laughs) am able to enjoy both. And I do feel like something that happens in publishing conversations is we don't really trust readers to be people who like more than one thing. If that makes sense, where it's like, oh, this is too speculative. So our literary readers are not going to like it. Or this is our, you know, this is something that has too much of a, you know, main literary thrust and it's not going to appeal to yeah. our genre readers. Well, our I, brand won't support this. Exactly. But then, like, it totally does exactly. when you have somebody who's and I, already published. And, like, that is actually, I don't know, you and I talk about it so frequently and I well, talk about tra- it with we're, so Yeah, we're, tr- we're both trying to sell books like, that are in this area. I don't, so I don't know, or I can't remember off the top of my head how many times we've said this on this show, but, like, one of my big things, and one of our big things, is that publishers should give readers way more credit. Yeah. You know? like, And they should trust that people are able to be discerning and are able to kind of see variants uh, as interesting. And, and more importantly, even than that, publishers can... They can be tastemakers, right? Like, so much of this discussion, I think... Well, they is, should be. That's kind of the exactly. whole point of publishing. <laughs> well, th- so... That makes sense to us saying it on this podcast, but that is not necessarily the working logic, right? And we've talked about that on other shows, too, where, like, 
a lot of the time it feels like the publisher is simply trying to respond to conditions without trying to affect them. Yeah. Right? They're saying, oh, this is what readers like right now. We're going to give them that, as opposed to what power publishers actually have, which is to say, okay, readers like this. We're going to give them something slightly different because we know before even they know that they're going to like this, you know? And that is, that's where really good publishing happens. And I just have to continue to believe that that is a mode of, that's a mode of publishing and acquiring and thinking about like this split between aesthetic and genre Mm -hmm. that, again, I'm not totally sure is fully real for readers as much as it is for us. Like, I mean, obviously, like, we've described differences. It's not that the difference isn't there. But, like, in terms of enjoyment, in terms of what I might pick up and what I might not, like, I don't know. I just think that this stuff is much more blurry or even more simple than this sort of splintering of category and subcategory yeah. and all this, like, taxonomy that now happens in publishing. Yeah. I just and, think, yeah, I don't you know. You know, on, on a lot of levels, I understand the impulse to... I mean, in editor, I have to give them a little bit of credit. Sure. Like, it's their job to sell the book to way more people than it's our job to sell the book Absolutely. to. Absolutely. <laughs> we sell Absolutely. it to the editor. The editor sends, sells it to the rest of the editorial team, their bosses, the salespeople, the marketing people. like, And they sell it to everybody, right? Mm. And I I think the it becomes easier to – or to get success in those those types of sales meetings when you are reinforcing a brand rather than redefining a brand all the time. Um, and, you know, I think ideally, like, everybody will always be redefining what their publisher's brand is yeah. because it's exciting. So, like, I think a lot about um, writers always ask, like, is this thing dead, right? Like, can I still write about X, Y, Z? And... The answer is always, well, maybe yes or no, depending on the market. But, like, the thing is, is that thing isn't going to disappear. You just have to wait. And Nothing disappears. Nothing not, not, nothing disappears, but also, like, just because there's one big something doesn't mean that you don't have a place there. So I talk – I think about, um, like, vampires a lot, yeah. right? Right. Vampires exist differently in the YA space between and the, the adult space. Mm-hmm. Vampires – you know, range from um, very sort of like literary kind of historically sort of stuff all the way to like Twilight, yeah. right? And like yeah. you have the same subject matter, but in one, like in one, everything is super sexy and very euphemistic and very literary. And on the other hand, they sparkle and play baseball. And like, there's no way that you can say, like, in a market as wide and broad as publishing with so many readers who, by the way, if they fucking love vampires, yeah. they'll read a bunch of vampire books. Like, yeah. it's not like there's one and they're like, well, I love vampires. I read the vampire book. We're finished with vampires. That's not how it works. And but yeah. the but the frustration there is, is like with that comes with variation comes uncertainty yeah. and publishing because of the direction that it's going, which we've talked about before is less interested in that. Uncertainty is scary for publishers right now because we're in this period. And I think that's a great point. Like we're in this period of, you know, boomer bust publishing. Yeah. Right. Which actually is the topic of the Tulu and May concern. It is. At the end, but, I brought it there on purpose. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, I think one of the one of the casualties of that mode of publishing, um, especially in a conversation like this one, is we've sort of totally discounted the idea of reader curiosity, yeah. right? Because as you say, like all of this adds up on an industry level to describing a human being that just does not exist, yeah. right? Like someone who, oh, I read this one book in this one category, don't want another one. Or, oh, I only want this specific set of things and don't want any sort of variant or anything else. Like, that's just not – it's not how people – I mean, it's. I get that it's how some people read from time to time. I get it's how, you know, sometimes you want the book with the specific conventions. Like, I get all that. But the point is that there's so much more breathability into the way actual consumers and readers think about books that I just think is really missing right now. And – 
I don't know. I, and, and the speculative thing really brings it out in my thinking because it just feels like the place where at any given moment, often interchangeably in a way that makes conversation difficult, someone in the book industry could be meaning speculative as a vibe. They could be meaning it as a core plot concept. They could be meaning it as something about the protagonist. They could be like, it could mean any number of things. Yeah. And because we've all been taught to splinter books into tiny little qualities that we then try to line up with someone else who likes all those qualities, it, be, it becomes this like game of matching that it just can't be done, you know? And, it, and it's not productive in the idea of like, Produ- you know, publishing and producing things that people actually want or are actually interesting. You know? Yeah, and it and like quite honestly, it makes it difficult to find the books that you're trying to read, right? Yeah. You know, like I feel like we're getting to a place. Gothic is having a little bit of a revival yeah. right now, yeah. and Gothic is super speculative. Like it's yeah. full of ghosties and monsters and all that stuff. But um, I and there's think a name attached to that trend, right? Like so, we've had like the reason something like that has a moment is partly because a very strong, prominent writer shows up and convinces people who maybe weren't necessarily into that, that, wow, this is actually really cool. Like, I know, like, you know, Machado did that for me with, like, gothic elements and things like that. Like, that's not what I naturally pick up, but, you know, these books were, they're great. And so I, you know, like, these things have a moment because a publisher takes a risk that maybe they deem safer because of the name attached to it. And suddenly it's like, oh, wow, readers actually will pick up something that we didn't expect, you know? But also observe that a big chunk of the gothic moment is happening in a way that is still separating the literary fiction from the science fiction fantasy writers. You know, and you can look at a book like Mexican Gothic and see just, like, how... Which which definitely sits more in the science fiction fantasy area, and you can kind of see how something like that might start being able to bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, <laughs> like, honestly, I think that if we keep going down this road, right? Like, if we keep going down the road of publishing books that fit your brand rather than letting the books that you publish define your brand. Um, and you keep doing boom or bust, like what we're just going to keep dealing with year after year are new words that obscure a, the speculative nature of various literary fiction. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, that's like going to be hard for readers to find it because also, you know, what's def- where are the parameters of a gothic book? Where are the parameters of you know, a contemporary horror that's super literary. Like, how would you, how would people describe Colson Whitehead? Like, honestly, yeah. like, if he hadn't have yeah. started kind of like Machado in a yeah. smaller, kind of weirder side of speculative publishing, like, would he have been able to do the Underground Railroad? And you could I sort don't of know. Say, yeah, and you could sort of look at someone like him and say they sort of wrote progressively more mainstream, you know, stories. As that, they developed. Yeah, like... I don't know. It, it's interesting. Um, and I do think, like, not to, like, you know, give away the sauce here, but, like, if you're, you know, a young agent or someone listening to this or anyone in the book business who's maybe starting out, like, this is why it's absolutely essential to have real conversations with people mm-hmm. as opposed to doing things only like reading a manuscript wish list or, like, <laughs> you know, looking at recent acquisitions, you know, like all the things that agents do, you know, to try to find editors. Like, have a conversation with someone because they're a per- they're a reader too in a way that simply is not accounted for in the way we've all been taught to talk about books publicly. Yeah. Like, there's just such a deep divide there that it does become necessary to try to connect on that more breathable human level with someone else who you're trying to connect on a project with. You yeah, know? there's a big difference between somebody self-selecting out of reading a project because... Yes there's a buzzword that you don't think right. that you like right. versus reading it and going, oh, this book is 90,000 words and it's so much more than what this 300-word yes. pitch said. Yes. And, you know, the first, I, I maybe we'll kind of put a bow on this yeah. conversation um, with a little bit of an anecdote, which is, so when I was um, early on in my agenting career, I was selling a science fiction book that was very literary in quality. And it was... Um, 
it had a lot of themes that played better at the time in literary for, to literary publishers yeah. than it did to science fiction fantasy publishers. If I tried to sell it today, it would be a little bit different. But um, I subbed it to literary houses. I subbed it to science fiction houses. Um, it ended up going to a indie house that didn't do science fiction, really, mm-hmm. truly. Um, but they hooked onto it because of the thematics, right? Right. And the writing. And I remember a couple of years later, after the book started to do really well, I got an apology note from one of the science fiction editors Mm -hmm. that turned down the book Mm -hmm. saying, I feel stupid that I turned this down. (laughs) Which is a really, like, delightful note to get. Not even from, like, a petty stint, but just, like, because we're all trying to figure these things out. It is. But I, I look at that as, like, wow, what could... You know, yeah. what What could have happened if this person hadn't have, like, self-selected away from this? Right. Oh, it's too literary, yeah. even though it takes place on a spaceship, right? right. Um, right. And that's, that's kind of where, you know, you and I, the reason that we've been having this conversation for months and months and months is because we are not only trying to, like, sell the book to somebody who really likes it, but we're trying to convince them that, like, actually they can push the beyond the parameters of what they think they set the terms yeah you said publishers the terms. set the terms yeah not re- not readers truthfully and i love you dear readers but you read what people publish <laughs> and like it's and that's good and you should want it that way by the way because that's how you get surprised like yeah. that's how i don't know so i just think this turned into a conversation about like readers versus publishing tastes and I guess that's a natural output of where we started, but I'm just interested in this stuff, and I'm interested how it specifically relates to a very slippery term like speculative or literary or things like that, you know? And I'm interested to see how the, like, limits of the aesthetic sort of glassiness versus the core of the project being speculative, how that division might shift or change as as you know we move forward in this decade but we will obviously be revisiting this because this is something that eric and i work on a lot we care about a lot um but in the meantime let's move over to the taloon it. it may concern so i will read this please dearest loon oh on the podcast, y'all talk about the shrinking midlist a lot. And as a reader, I would like to try to read and support midlist authors. My problem is, is that I don't know how to find them. Right now, I most I find most new books via book Twitter. But I know that part uh, that part of the problem of that midlist authors face is that their books don't get as much publicity and blu- and buzz as the big names. I tried following some book bloggers on TikTok. But that's also a lot of the same best-selling authors over and over again. Is there any easy way or any, or really any possible way to be more directly connected with midlist authors and their books? Thanks and all the best. Insert clever pun here in Utah. Um, really good question. Really interesting question. Um, and this feels like a question that any number of people within sort of the book critical sphere would have a different answer for. Yeah. Which is like, how do you find the books that aren't the ones that show up in every single mainstream roundup forever? And the I will, ones that don't have an ad in Times Square. Right. And I will just say, like, I really share this frustration in a way because, like, it's <laughs> Moose <laughs> has joined dog, the podcast, like <laughs> by the way, and she's very loud. Um. But I share this frustration, too, because one thing that happens a lot is book roundups from various outlets or lists or, like, here's what you should read this spring or any other set. Mm -hmm. It's always the same stuff, and it's always, like, things that you would have heard about anyway. Like, this is a major point of frustration I know from a lot of my critic friends who are, like, it's, like, people whose job it is to find mid-list books to pay attention to have this issue, too. Like, it's not just you, uh, insert clever pun here in Utah, Um, but I think for me like the operative term here is that you're you're talking about trying to find things through book Twitter now that is a very big and diffuse term Um, and what I would say is maybe at least the way that I have found success with this is to really kind of drill into more like book critic Twitter like so there's 
like, I mean, you know, you could spend hours talking about the book internet, but like, there's a subset of people who write real essays, you mm-hmm. know, real pieces of literary criticism. We have we had a whole episode on this. We had Nathan Goldman on the show one time um, to talk about this stuff, and you know, there are people in magazines, you know, like the New Republic or Jewish Currents or the Baffler or um, you know any of these places that do sort of higherbrow literary criticism that really try to find this stuff. And one thing I have found as a byproduct of trying to pay attention to those essays is you start following those critics mm-hmm. on Twitter and suddenly you're kind of seeing the, the discussions they're paying attention to and what they're talking about. And so, like, you're right that, like, if book Twitter for you consists only of, like, authors promoting things and book, book bloggers, which is a very different thing than an actual critic... Um, like, I think you're going to end up in a place that is largely incentivized by um, engagement, right? Mm. Like, every mm-hmm. single party that you're, you're describing in that ecosystem thrives on getting as many eyes on it as possible, which means that they're going to pick books that are going to do that. And so you have to find writers who write about books or think about books for reasons other than that, you know? Yeah. And so I would just, like... Think about the critical coverage you're consuming. You know, like that, at least this is what's, I mean, because I've had this exact problem before too. And like, if you try to find the people who are writing interesting things about books, uh, like in a real kind of more considered way than just like a blog post or just like a list roundup, you know, an actual like piece of criticism, an essay or something, like find those people because they tend to pay attention to catalogs and lists and houses and things that cover things that are not quite on the beaten track, you know? So your answer is totally different than mine. Okay, what's your answer? Which I love. What's which your I love. Um, well, I think to kind of push off of the book Twitter thing, um, book Twitter is not my first or even second place to go f- to find midlist books, um, but it is my place to go to discover books of, like, very narrow parameters, right? So... I think when you say, like, I've been trying to find things on book Twitter, it's too diffuse. You have to decide, like, what little pocket of book Twitter you want to be in. So um, the little pocket that I live in a little bit is um, YA, right? Like, young adult literature. And within that, there are certain people online who really focus on discovering and aggregating books of kind of all publisher investment levels. Um, so like a really good example is Dahlia Adler, who can, who mm-hmm. maintains a blog about LGBTQ books sure. for teens, yeah. right? So like if you're like, I want to find more of these books, like go there. Um, I really like Angie Manfredi, um, who does a lot of stuff about fat rep and talks about that. Um, I follow a lot of authors of color because a lot of the time they're, re- they're really – excellent and are working really hard to build robust networks to promote um, those authors who might get less investment from their publishers. Um, But just like I follow names that I recognize on Twitter is not going to cut it. However, like that's that's online. Right. Um, My honest to God, like best advice is just to like go to the bookstore or the library, Um, but specifically a bookstore. And let me tell you why. Books are returnable products. And so a lot of the time, a bookstore will order a new book in and they'll kind of like try it. Um, And if it doesn't sell in somewhere between two to three months, they usually send it back to the distributor. Mm -hmm. Um, Which means that the books that you will find on the shelves at any given time in a bookstore are either their perennial sellers or their brand new books they're given a shot on. So like... This might not work. I mean, if you want to find older midlists, you can probably go to a used bookstore. Mm-hmm. You can go to the library for sure. But a bookstore is super great just to, like, even go to research. And I know we're in COVID times, but we see the light at the end of the tunnel and bookstores are good. Um, so, like, just go to the bookstore and just spend an hour or two looking at the shelves and see what pops out at you. And maybe you'll discover something that you've never even heard of or never even seen and maybe it's won a ton of awards and it's actually sold really well but maybe it's also not and that's kind of that's what I've always done and I would just say so that's really good too and I think maybe my last quick tip here is is to like curate a list of non-big five houses 
Oh, you, also true. That you are really interested in paying attention to. Like for me, and I'm going to miss somebody. So please, if you're of this press or something, like I'm sure that I like them too. But just like as a fast little, like Grey Wolf Coffee House, Counterpoint, Tin House. Um, Akashic. Yeah. Like these, yeah. yeah. These places, because just by virtue of being the size that they are, their books end up scanning as quote unquote midlist amidst the giant ocean of big five publishers, Mm -hmm. even though it might be their lead title. And so it might be a book that really will knock your socks off, but isn't getting the same level of attention just because it's coming from a slightly smaller place. And a lot of the time, what I have found is presses like that, like the smaller, maybe slightly more literary houses or more devoted to a specific thing, like they end up like taste often flows downstream from them. Like if you, if a small press has a hit, you'll see versions of that hit next season from you know bigger houses. You know, or what I in mean? a like, couple of years, the author right. that did really well at a coffee house or a yeah. Grey Wolf, which we always talk about because they're local and we love them, um, might move to yeah. a big house like a Riverhead or an FSG right. or something like right. that, and then have the big lead title in their yes. big five debut. But So, like, the way to start paying attention, I think, all apart from all the things Laura said and my thought about critics and all that, but, like, really pay attention to maybe the slightly smaller, less corporate presses because they're often setting the tone in a way that will help you kind of see where certain trends come from, where certain um, writers, oftentimes, like you said, like, sometimes where writers come from, you know, like, I mean, you could rattle off the number of writers who got their start in one of these Minneapolis publishing houses and ended up somewhere big, you know, and like, um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of different ways. Hopefully some of those are useful, you know? Yeah. So um, I would love if there's anything that we missed in terms of like way to find midlist or, yes, or some sort of us. resource. Yeah, we'll, uh, prom- we'll promote it. Yeah. Let us know because we love midlist authors, not just because they're not getting the attention that they perhaps deserve, but also because a lot of the times publishers allow their midlist to be like a little kookier mm-hmm. than their front list, um, unless the name is really big, in which case it's kind of flipped. But the point is, they're good books. The midlist shouldn't go away. It exists for a reason and it should continue to exist. Okay, getting off my um, soapbox now to close the show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Remember to um, send us your queries, your first pages, your suggestions, your requests, anything like that. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. And we will see you for a regular episode next week. Bye.